Welcome to the West of 105 podcast, a podcast that looks at all aspects of lifestyle in Colorado west of the 105th meridian. In this episode of our Michelin mini-series, we're in Vail, in a beautiful private residence at the Four Seasons Resort or Residences Vail, no less, ahead of the release of the guide with Four Seasons Vail executive chef Simon Purvis and Mackenzie Nicholson, the executive chef at Bino's Cabin at Beaver Creek Resort. Hi, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, so um, obviously my accent's not as strong as it used to be, but I'm from southern England, grew up um, wanting to travel and found my way into this industry at a fairly fairly young age. Um, went to culinary school in southern England. I, I always tell people, especially young students, that it was the first time I ever used my brain. It was my first day in culinary school. Um, I just loved it that much, and um, I've been doing it ever since. I uh, traveled the world. Um, first job was in Switzerland at the Montreux Palace. Worked with a crazy Swiss-German chef uh, back in the day when those, those types of things were allowed, and um, just had a, had a great experience, and then moved to Edinburgh, worked with a super calm, focused chef that helped on the line. I thought, I want to be like that guy. He was really my mentor. His name was Jeff Bland, and then met a, met a beautiful Scottish girl. She went to Toronto, so I followed her over there, and, and then together we moved to Vancouver, uh, joined the Four Seasons in Vancouver. Um, I've been working with this brand for 33 years, and my first day in Vancouver was just incredible. It's just like family, be working with people that had a similar work ethic and, and desire to be in the industry and be the best we could be. And we had Pacific Northwest, so you had all of the Asian influence in the food. You had the fresh seafood. It was just really an, an inspiring place to work. And then my first transfer was to Melbourne, Australia, um, as restaurant chef, um, again, Australia is just an incredible place to, to, to live and work, especially in your early 20s, because Australians have a lot of fun. But we also had great product coming out of Tasmania, uh, the Tasmanian Sea for seafood. Um, then I transferred to open the Four Seasons Berlin, which, again, great, great experience. And then Bali, Indonesia for two years, which was just incredible with the types of food and you know, Bali is just a special, special place. The people there, incredible. And then uh, to Singapore, which again is an incredible experience. Then we came stateside to uh, Scottsdale, Jackson Hole, Denver, and now Vail. And feel so privileged to be doing what I'm doing for a brand that I have nothing but the utmost respect for. Wow. That's quite the... That's quite a journey. That's quite a quite journey a with one company. Journey. Yeah. And I, I tell this story... Um, in Embark when we bring on new employees because <clears throat> I definitely didn't think big enough when I first got in the industry. I thought I just wanted to be a chef, but I didn't think that I could travel the world and, and see these great things and, and learn the different cultures. And, and I've been lucky enough to, to travel with my wife and do all of these journeys and raise a family along the way. And my kids have seen a lot of fun things. And to be here in this this Vail Valley, it's incredible. Um, when when did you come to Vail? So I came up during COVID. Okay. Um, October eighth, uh, we shut down the Four Seasons Denver for renovations. I came up here to assist. COVID was a really weird time for everybody, right? It was just um, there was so much uncertainty. But to to come up here, that it was so busy because people were coming to the mountains to to escape the cities, and we were um, we were stretched to say to say the least, and. I really fell in love with this property, the team, and um, 
I'd been in Denver for 11 years, so it was time for something new. And I said to my wife, I'd like to transfer here. And she said, absolutely. She's from the Highlands of Scotland, so it's kind of like coming home. And then came permanently July uh, 2021. So it's been just over two years and just love it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's quite the journey, especially sticking with one company for that long. It's It's a whole podcast to just talk about, like, coming up here during COVID and making that switch during COVID. Um, which I would love to hear more about, but I want to make sure that we we give an opportunity to two guests. And I guess now we're starting from the other side because you're just beginning your journey. Exactly, yep. I'm going on a little close to 10 years now. Um, Started my journey at Escoffier Culinary School in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I didn't see myself being able to do another four years of school, and I figured it would get me into the industry a little bit faster. So after my 10 months there, I went to a um, family ranch outside of Bailey, Colorado. So we had guests that coming in on a weekly basis. We would cook three meals a day plus their snacks for them. After that, I transferred down to an Italian restaurant that I helped open in Castle Rock. Um, so started on basically Garmanger there. And then when I left, I was executive sous chef. Um, that's really the chef that I owe everything to. I think he taught me most of everything that I know and made me passionate the way that you should be when you want to proceed in this industry. After that, I um, actually worked in this valley for a summer season at the Arrowhead Country Club. That was my big first experience in what I call a real kitchen, basically, from what I had done before that. We had all three meal services, um, banquet side of things, so it it opened my eyes to a bigger picture. From there, I went to the Grand Lake area, um, started at Devil's Thumb Ranch, where I was hired as sous chef, and two months later came on board as executive chef of Hex Kitchen. From there, I went. I spent two years there and went to Grand Lake Lodge for a summer. A um, lot of history there, which is really cool. Gerald Ford stayed there. Beautiful views. I got to live in a cabin above a lake, so I was pretty happy. Um, and then made my transfer back over to this valley a little over a year ago now. Took the job at Bino's Cabin. Was really able to make the menu my own, focus on what I call Colorado cuisine, and highlight my raising here in Colorado. So that was pretty exciting for me. I thought it was a pretty big stretch when I applied for the job. And uh, Chef Gitowski and Mr. Gall brought me on board, and I've had a great time ever since. Well, there you go. I mean, you, if you don't ask, you don't get, yes. right? So can I, before we move on, I want to ask you about Colorado cuisine while you mentioned it. Yeah, so uh, what, what is that to, you? to me, you know, growing up in Colorado, I think that there's some things that we're very lucky to have. We have such a different climate around the whole state that we do have orchards. We have the wild game aspect. We raise our own freshwater fish here, so Arctic char and striped bass and stuff like that. I think that you can get the same experiences that you see on a coastal town, but just 180'd with everything that's walking around the mountains around here. Okay. So growing up hunting, I'm really big into what do you see around walking the cabin and what can you grow outside the cabin and harvest and then put it on the plate for your guests and elevate it. So, okay, Colorado cuisine, and you're saying everything that's walking around out there feeding on the local... Uh, forestry or, or you know however you want to say that how do you stand out how do you become how do you take something that everyone else is using be it elk be it deer venison you know steak meat how do you take what is the process to thinking like hey everybody else is doing this cuisine as well how do I stand out 
and become individualistic on that. And then I also wanted to ask kind of a similar question, Simon, when you're protecting a brand like four seasons, how, when you're developing your menu and you're trying to be creative in that scenario, there's a, there's a consistency that you have to be able to the experience that, that people are looking for, and maybe even an expectation, you know, they come to this area and they, they expect to be able to sit down and have, you know, a certain type of meal, right? How do, does that limit you at all? I guess is, is really the question that I'm trying to ask in, in your creative process, because either I'm using the same materials that everybody else is using, or I'm trying to protect an experience that somebody has had in the past because that that's the reputation that we have. I personally see it as a good personal challenge. You want to stand out, and so then you have to look at what everybody else is doing and figure out how you can be different. Um, you know, when I'm putting rabbit or duck on a plate, what do those animals eat while they're out in the wild, and how can I transform that into another aspect of my dish? So, like on our rabbit dish, I do carrot velouté because rabbits love carrots, <laughs> you know? So there's a little bit of whimsical play on that, I guess, from my perspective. Yeah. I, I like to keep the flavors to their purest form. I, I Like if I'm going to have a, a piece of duck or elk, that that's first and foremost on the plate. And then, you know, we're, we're allowed to tap into our resources and our experiences. Like my time in Asia, I love using misos and soy sauces and some of those gingers and turmeric. So if, I, if I'm pairing a mushroom or something with a dish, I, I tend to lean towards an Asian influence with a, a type of finish to kind of offset and, and be, be creative and different. So that's, that's where I tend to go. Yeah, like Dennis, I think, was you know, talking about, is that it's a fine line, right, between consistency and, and the brand versus being creative. Sometimes they, they seem to be working against each other, right, to be consistent but also to challenge yourself and to present different things to, um, to the customers. So. Yeah, we're lucky as a brand at Four Seasons, there's nothing from corporate that we have to have on the menu. There's no basic base recipes. There's no, there's nothing like that. Once upon a time, there was a cheesecake that we had to have on room service, but that, that went away a long time ago. So we have free reigns. And as chefs, we are, we're, we live in such a beautiful area and we've become part of the, part of the community. And we, we listen to what we're being told they enjoy and they don't enjoy. We listen to the servers when they come back from tables. We get to do a lot of specials um, on a nightly basis. So during the course of a week, we can run three or four different things. And if they sell well and if they're well received, then they're noted. And when we start planning for the next menu change, they, they make it to the menu. Right. Try it and test it. What, um, just while we're on the subject too of local produce, you know, what are some of your favorite things that walk around um, and the vegetables that they eat? What are I, the I don't shoot like Mackenzie, but <laughs> I, I tend to pick. My my favorite thing is is foraging for porcinis and right now there's tons of wild raspberries out there and yeah. so mushrooms, huckleberries from I, I love using those types of things. We make a big point on our way up to work every morning to stop at the raspberry bushes, the currant bushes, and um, we're not harvesting enough to make you know enough for a sauce for the entire week, but we can make a sauce for that night or for family meal or whatever it may yeah. be, and it's coming off the bush minutes before you're eating it, which is. Really nice. I think one of my favorites is the Palisade peaches yeah. or any of 
the other items that are grown in the orchards on the western slope. Um, the apricots were amazing this year, really short season, but that's kind of what we deal with here in Colorado is getting everything while it is good for the two weeks that it grows and then right. trying to work with greenhouses or whatever have you to supply us for the rest of the year. Yeah, so it's fair to say that seasonality as well as regional produce is kind of critical to, to the menus you both put together? Yeah. I think so. I think, too, some things you're able to preserve and use later on in the year as well. Like today at pre-shift, we were talking about the peaches right now. Are, they're juicy and ripe. So we're talking about ordering 10, 12, 14 cases and then making them into a, a preserve that we can use throughout the winter. Um, have that Palisade peach yeah. for, our guests, for our guests that come in. Exactly. And that's something we're big on at Beano's as well is saving everything, um, you know, whether it be pickling or fermenting honeys or whatever have you, you can still use this great product at any time of year when you can only really buy it, the good stuff for two weeks. Right. <laughs> right. I guess it's, I mean, when you operate at a certain level, it's that foresight as well, right? To, to realize that now is the time to buy them and and preserve them or do something with them so we can use them for the next three, six, nine months. Um, yeah, it sounds like you, you have uh, a lot to do. At any given time when the produce is good, you have to utilize it. Are there lo logistics issues? I mean, we're in a resort town. You're, you're an hour away from Denver. You're an hour plus away from, you know, the uh, Roaring Fork Valley and Grand Junction, where I'm assuming a lot of you know, produce and, and, and product comes in out of those versus if you were in Denver, right? It might be a little bit easier. Do you guys deal with any of those logistic issues yeah. being in a resort town? And how much does that affect, you know, being able to c create a consistent product? Again, back to that consistency idea. I'm sure we can both share horror stories of a snowstorm or I-70 uh, closure or... That's usually our biggest issue yeah. with receiving product from the large purveyors that aren't local is the pass gets shut down more often than not. Their truck can't make it over, whatever have you. Yeah. And then there's also the logistics. Like I was in Crested Butte a couple of weeks ago with uh, my son had a birthday, so we went out into the farmer's market and there's an acres chicken um, uh, farmer there he makes this beautiful, organic, free-range chicken. And asking him, can I get it in Vail? You could just see him go, how do I get it to Vail? But he's figuring it out. He's got a truck that picks up apples, and they bring them into Avon, and they were able to get them from Avon delivered into Vail. And this Friday will be the first shipment that we get. But this chicken is going to be one of the first things I promote to our new uh, media company called Feed Media to get the story out there because... There's nothing better than using a, a product that is grown locally and, and we can get it and serve it. Because our guests travel from all over the world to come and see us here. Wow. And you, we can't lose sight of that. Like, right. Well, then, of course, if you're serving things, dishes and ingredients from around the world, that might actually be where they're from. You know, they, when they come here, they want that Colorado experience. Yeah. And that's the mountains and it's everything else. But it also extends to the food or, or it should, at least, I think. So yeah, it's um yeah, local seasonal. Is there is there anything that you wish people knew about either you the brand or being a chef and being in this industry, especially maybe as it can, it pertains to you know, being potentially listed in the Michelin guide or or getting a star. Is there anything you wish people knew about the industry? 
what you see on television is not what's really happening in our kitchens. I think that's kind of where we, it was going. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we, I, we don't scream, we don't shout, we're focused, we're planners, we're, we're organized, we're clean. Are you we're, thinking we're, of a particular chef when you say we don't scream <laughs> no. in the kitchen? No. No, no, not a, or a particular not, TV not show. Not one I can mention on the... Uh, no, yeah. I can mention him. <laughs> no, but it's just, you know, we're organized. We we communicate with very diverse teams, sometimes not in English. I, you know, our workforce is, is no longer English speakers for the most part. It's, you know, it's learning to speak in Spanish or um, Filipino or... Right now, we've got some guest chef in from Argentina, so using Google Translator to know what she needs to order this week, it's, yeah. And on top of the language barrier, you also deal with the seasonality of workers who want to only be here for the summer or only be here for the winter. Mm. So while you might have one or two people who want to stay year-round, you're, at least, I know that we are consistently training new teams every season. Um, So that plays a part in the consistency part because when you're training everybody you know there's every three or four months you're getting new people in so. right and I guess the customers don't well they don't know and for the most part they don't care particularly you know they care about what comes out of the kitchen on their plate but they they don't see what goes on in the kitchen so yeah that seems like that's another tough challenge is to maintain those not only consistency but the high standards that you know people come to expect um, whilst dealing with all kinds of logistical issues in the kitchen, whether it's a snowstorm or workers just deciding that it's not for them. So, yeah, it's... Um, but you're smiling. Like, this is, well, is, is it an say, enjoyable challenge? When No, when you're saying when workers decide it's not for them, you're meaning they're just walking out and things like I that. Mean, so you've heard some things. It's. I mean, I guess it's every chef I've ever spoken to, um, nobody has ever said it's an easy job. Cooking yeah. is the easiest thing we ever do as chefs. Right. Cooking is the easiest. We grew up working lines, creating food, working with chefs who are teaching us. Like Cooking is the easiest thing we ever do. And then at some point in our career, we're projected forwards, and that's when it gets tricky. Do you, find, do you cook less? You know, are you managing people more and cooking less as you I, progress? I, I do cook a little less, but there's, there's still times we're jumping on the line mm-hmm. and be good two three hours with the team on a daily basis sometimes yeah. i mean i mean we're still struggling with the same staffing issues that um sprouted from covid mm-hmm. and you know i have yet to see a night this season where i'm not on the line right. now i love being a line cook mm-hmm. but it's also hard when you have so many other things to focus on and you want to make sure that every product coming out of your kitchen is the best it can be but when you can't leave your line mm. it's hard to have your eyes on everything and It's hard for me to trust, although I do trust my entire team. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to follow that through when I can't see everything going out of the kitchen. Yeah, it seems like a kind of a catch-22. You know, the better you get, the more experienced you get, the more you have to move away from the thing that brought you in to begin with, the love of cooking and touching the ingredients and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a... Yeah, I I think I alluded to when, when I saw you a couple of weeks ago that one of my favorite things is coming in on a Tuesday after being off, looking at the market list from Fresh and Wild, and then picking some items to come in, and then planning a special with the team that we're going to run on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. That, for me, is the best. And They have a large workload, so they don't always have the time to do all the preparation for the special. So 
we get in there, we're cleaning, breaking down fish, and 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 creating that first plate for them to replicate. I that that's exciting for me. Yeah. I love I love that part of my job. Yeah. I I I will purposely leave paperwork aside and other responsibilities to focus on that because if I don't have that, then I don't think I would I'd enjoy my job. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if you don't cook, would you consider yourself a chef anymore? If you know what I mean, it's some chefs don't cook anymore, mm-hmm. um, and they, they're, they're still chefs. But are they the ones that shout and scream in the kitchens too? There's probably some insecurities start start to creep in. But for me, I've I've always been fortunate enough to uh, have to be on the line and and be able the ability to do a good job at it and not have the cook say to me, "Oh my God, chef's helping me again. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. I better cook two of everything." <laughs> Just in case. Yeah, well, so in other conversations we've had, um, it seems somewhat common for chefs to um, to talk the way that you're talking about, the love of cooking and the love of food, yet the majority have said they don't necessarily cook when they're at home. <laughs> I'm so, the total opposite. I don't know about you, Mackenzie. When I am home, I do like to cook for okay. myself. Yeah, me too. Um you know, lucky enough to, that we, we put a family meal for all of our teams so we can eat at work. Um, but if I have a day off, I'll make myself dinner. I do, not to say I, I love to go out to eat as well. Yeah. Um, okay, but when you say dinner, yes, are we talking a microwave meal? No, I don't okay. own a microwave, actually. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> but what kind of dinner are we talking about? Because, you know, restaurant style, restaurant quality food. Um, do you have the time for that at home when you're on a day off or do you want to do other things? I can make the time, um, but I do enjoy other things. You know, we live in a beautiful place, mm-hmm. so I want to be able to enjoy that. And I'm lucky enough to live right off the river so I can walk out my back door, go fishing, catch dinner if I'd like right, to, right, right. um, you know, but my, my freezer is full of everything that I've harvested. So if I know I'm getting a day off, I'll pull something out the night before, whether it turns into breakfast or dinner. That's to be determined, but I try to cook at least myself one nice meal a week, you know, yeah. if we get two days off. then Do you, two f- days. Do you feel like it's you have a responsibility too as well to eat out actually in the area to, to check up on what other people are doing as well? I think it creates an opportunity for me to see where myself and my team can improve. Um, but it's also just nice to get out and get something different. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's fun to support all the local businesses and um, but I don't think it's something that I have to do every single weekend mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm getting the full yeah. part of living up here. Okay. And you cook yeah, at home. I do. I, yeah. I use my, my wife as a guinea pig quite often. Um, <laughs> she doesn't like cooking, so she'd eat toast and jam or marmalade. That would be it. Every day. And dinner. So like when we're working on some new dishes here, I try and replicate them for her. Like the last thing I made at home was a summer noodle salad that, um, we made a vegan version with pickled ginger and soy roasted oyster mushrooms and some furikake and wasabi and ponzu sauce. Just, she enjoyed that. Yeah. So no so, haggis in the Purvis house? You know, she's a vegetarian, but I guess haggis isn't a vegetable because she will <laughs> eat haggis. <laughs> I'm not sure you should be divulging that. Yeah, no, she will every now and then. Yeah. Do you like haggis, incidentally? I love haggis. It's delicious. It's amazing, especially but, with a good dram of whiskey. I mean, have you tried haggis? I have not. It seems like it would be up your street. You I could probably to. make it with all of the bits left yeah. off over the animals you harvest. I'll have so, to yeah. look into it. I've... Maybe you can teach me how. <laughs> yeah, it's the best. Yeah. So along those lines, what's the earliest meal you can remember 
cooking? Like how far back in your? I have to how, go back. How, how far back in your Mackenzie? Give me a while <laughs> to think about it. <laughs> yeah, we'll have we'll have Mackenzie go first. Um, meal, you know, always just cooking with my parents. Um, since we were a big sports family, we would always have dinner together before we went our ways. And um, elk was a big staple, and so my dad would teach me how to make breaded elk. My mom was a big on like pastas, um, mac and cheese for my grandma was a big thing. Um, or even just like egg drop soup. That was a big staple for us. <laughs> and how old would you have been around this time when you started cooking these things? Um, elk, I'd probably say 11 or 12. Yeah. Egg drop soup, five or five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was our thing to make when I got sick with grandma was egg drop soup. <laughs> for, for me, it was um, the first memory I really have is cooking omelet, like, like making myself an omelet and asking my neighbor what I should put in it. I, we used to cook with lard back then. Mm. Like, so my grandfather would always cook his eggs and bacon every day in lard, and then we did fried bread where we take a piece of bread and we cook it in the lard as well. Um, so just playing around with that would be my first memory of cooking would be omelets, eggs, bacon. Yeah, and that would have been at a similarly young age, you yeah. guess? Fairly, fairly young, seven, yeah. eight. And then I think grandmothers and grandparents have a big influence in all of our lives. Um, family gatherings were huge for me as a youngster, just big white eyes and watching my grand make all of the stuff she would do, the soups and toad in the holes and all of the fun things that we used to cook back in the UK. Yeah, but, I love fried bread. I mean, being from the <laughs> South, everything was was cooked. That's, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. we called it Crisco, you know, that was the same thing though. Same Pretty difference. much, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess then the natural segue to that is um, from that first meal or from those early memories, at what point did you think to yourself, I think I want to be a chef. I want to cook for a living. Do you have a recollection of, of those, that moment? Or uh, I, I do. <clears throat> Growing up um, in England, our, our holidays were going camping over to southern France and, and, and Normandy and you know, being exposed to the cheeses and the different charcuteries and mussels and seafood that they that I didn't grow up with in England that I became really a, attracted to to the industry and at 13 in the UK you have to make decisions for your last two years of schooling so I chose home economics which um, I got you know made a lot of fun of as doing home economics yeah. but um, it's what I wanted to do and I, so for me it was around 13 and then you know started working in restaurants as a dishwasher in southern England about 14 or 15 and working my way into a kitchen and that's it. So I knew pretty early. And about you, Mackenzie? It took a little bit longer for me to figure it out. I was actually studying criminal justice originally. I did a year of that um, and I looked into culinary school after I figured that wasn't the correct path for me. I went to culinary school, fell in love with it immediately. I had worked in a kitchen at the hockey rink growing up, so I had a little bit of experience there, but that was, you know, pizza oven and microwave and very little stove work and knife skills and all of that. Um, but when I, after I finished culinary school and I started my first job at that guest ranch, you know, I really liked the personable aspect, being able to create things for people that create an experience for themselves, but you're also giving yourself an experience while you're creating it for the other people as well. Um, so I think from there, I just really fell in love and it hasn't stopped. I love that you can continue to learn every single day in this career. You never can stop learning because it's constantly changing. It's always improving. You have your staples, of course, but yeah. it's always changing. Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, Simon has got a, 
a long resume when it comes to international travel and those influences. But um, what, what are you influenced by outside of, say, Colorado or outside of even the US? What do you, what do you enjoy? What other cuisines you think would you either like to explore um, that appeal to you? Um, I think I would like to dive deeper into the Asian cuisines. Um, I love all of their ingredients, but I think that I could learn more about, you know, I want to go spend like a month in Japan, a month in Italy, a month in South America, you know, everywhere I really can go just to, because even if you're going to be in Italy, the northern and the southern regions are so different from mm -hmm. each other that I think that in order to submerge myself and get the full experience, I have to have kind of a resume like you do and travel and work with other chefs and see how the locals do it and how it's been done for, you know, forever. Um, I think growing up in America, you are exposed to different cuisines, um, but I think Denver is getting closer to being a bigger culinary scene now. And when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of differentiation between cuisines. You know, I was all the American food and then the occasional sushi restaurant or whatever have you. But now you're seeing all these little niches of yeah. food coming up. Oh, absolutely. Um, we're going to come back to that very soon, Denver's development and what's happening soon. But I, I wanted to just go back to, to, to Simon, to your resume. Um, and as Mackenzie said, you know, you're always learning and evolving and your resume is impressive, but what's left in terms of other cultures, other things that you want to learn and experience if given the opportunity? That's a good question. Um, I don't plan on moving overseas or doing an international travel again. I just, I, I, I don't want to do that again. I, I've done that. Um, I think I see my, my career over the next five, six, seven years being just constantly reinventing myself, finding new ingredients to work with that I haven't worked with before, challenging my team to challenge me. And what, what I mean by that is, like, we always talk about what do you want to learn? What do they want to cook with? Because I can bring in products all day long and I know how to cook them and I'm doing it for them, but what do they want to cook with? So just developing and evolving that way through my team and, and seeing them grow because as, as you see over the years, you work with people, you develop them, they transfer. Mm -hmm. Like some of the kids I worked with 10, 12, 14 years ago are now executive chefs at Level Four Seasons, and that, that's a reward, you know, to, to know that how much effort and, and discipline we put into us to, to developing somebody and seeing them succeed, that's, right. that, that, that's what rewards me. Right, it's the proof that it works. Yeah. And they put the work in and... They yeah. get that reward. So, do you do you both have that kind of open kitchen? Can people come in and that are part of your team and suggest like, hey, I'd really like to be able to add this element to our menu, or I'd be able, to, yeah, you yeah. Know. Or, or say, I've never cooked with this before. Can can you order it for us and we'll cook it together? Like that's that's, yeah, we have that open kitchen. I don't think if you don't have that line of communication with your staff. I think that they won't ever get better at what they're trying to do. If they're stuck in that same rut, they won't see new things. So if you present them to them and give them learning opportunities, your entire team is going to grow from that, which in turn makes you grow from that. Yeah. I think it's interesting what, uh, what both of you just said, um, <clears throat> in that the way Colorado and Denver you know, has developed, and you don't necessarily have to go overseas to 
find new cuisines and new ingredients because of those niches that you talked about. You know, I'm sure in Denver there are Cambodian restaurants or Filipino restaurants and, you know, there are places you can go to try those things that are a couple of hours away um, to get that extra experience. But, um, and that speaks to, I think, one of the reasons why we're here today, you know, is the Michelin Guide is coming to Colorado. And I think that's a testament to um, the way Denver has changed um, and the level of quality that's available in the Vale Valley and Boulder and Aspen. Um, so I think is now a good time to move on to talk about, you know, the Michelin Guide. Yeah. Um, how do you think, how do you do, what effect do you think it'll have on the Vale Valley and, and, you know, the restaurant industry here? It's already very competitive. So I think it will become more competitive to be the best, which I think is good for everybody. Um, you, we may see the benefit of talent coming from outside of Colorado to come and work in these restaurants because you, you know, we do struggle to get talent up here but or into Colorado specifically. But if we have Michelin star restaurants here, then that will attract talent from outside of Colorado. So that's good for all of us. I think that's probably the biggest impact um, on top of just making it more, even more so of a destination than it already is. I think if we do have the Michelin ratings, just like you said, people will want to come here more so than the culinary, for the culinary scene instead of just coming to snowboard for the winter. So Yeah, I, I always sell it like working for a Four Seasons. I get to come here and, and work in this, make, with this amazing property, but I can snowboard and I can fly fish. And I, you know, we, we did a, a recruiting ad a couple of years ago to say, hey, you can come to Colorado, work in a beautiful resort, and this is what your life can be because I know what the life is like in the big cities. After a long day grinding it out, you're going home and you go into bed and there's no snowboarding, there's no fresh air. There's So I hope it does bring talent here and they get to see that you can have a wonderful life, a culinary life here. Yeah. Is that, when I asked earlier, like what's one thing that you wish people knew, is that's not really the only benefit to being in a mountain resort town. Like, do you guys experience the same schedule as maybe some of the other mountain towns where you have off seasons and you, where you might not get that type of off time or downtime, you know, that you wouldn't have per se, like say in Denver or Los Angeles or New York or, or whatever. Um, you, you, you have that here in Vail. No, so, sometimes off season's more challenging than season because all your staff are gone. You're burning vacation, your team's vacation. So there's less of you or few of you in the kitchen or, or in the, or in the department, but I do enjoy the off season, and we we get to send uh, we get to send talent out to over four seasons as well to do something called task force. So they come back with new experiences. But did you know about that challenge in the industry? <laughs> <laughs> you thought off season was we're all lounging around. Yeah, you uh, like te you could teachers, right? You get like six weeks off, and no, it's well, so I mean, in in Telluride, so it's closer to the ski area where we live. There's like they have the challenges of rotating staff and people, you know, keeping people up to date and retraining them and things like that. Um, and even this, you know, mm -hmm. we talked about other mountain towns that we visited. There is some, um, well, 
when it's a privately owned restaurant, maybe it's a little bit different mm-hmm. than a than a resort managed um, yeah. restaurant. They they actually shut down, and so they do take that time for themselves. The restaurant's closed. They step away from it. So no, to answer your question, I didn't know that challenge. That's interesting. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? And we can cut me Nancy, out. Do you have anything to add? So. We at Bino's actually do shut down for about a month and a half for each mud season. That being said, we take the first week of that to shut down Bino's, completely clean it, get it ready to not be used for that month because we are in the middle of the mountain. We have to protect it from everything outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the end of that six weeks, we take those last two weeks really to reopen the restaurant, You know, get all of our menus redone and where they need to be, bring in on board our staff, bring in all of our product. Um, I know we start our winner off by doing the big World Cup race. And so that's, I think, two weeks before Bino's opens and stuff. And so while the restaurant is closed, there's always something to be done. Um, I'm lucky enough I get to enjoy about a week and a half of it to go hunting, but it's not the entirety of that mud season that we're not working. There's always something to be done. (laughs) Yeah, the the amount of planning that goes into setting yourself up for a successful winter season is, is incredible with changing out the menus and recipes and costings and, and staff training and getting ready to onboard a new team and making sure that the team's going out on vacation is, is crucial as well because you can't go into a, a winter season not refreshed. The winter season is such a beast around here compared to the summer season. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that today. We have a lot of new managers and it's, we're gonna we're gonna connect next week just to, you know, just to start talking about it. So, right. they, so it's not a be, huge shock. They can be to ready. Them. Yeah, no, right. it's and set them up for success. We want we want to be prepared going in. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Michelin Guide, obviously they send um, anonymous inspectors, and I think they visit restaurants usually usually two or three times, as far as I understand it. Um, so for you, there would be a better time of year for them to come. There are worse times when they could show up. I'd rather them come when we are busy because when we're busy, we are, we are full motion, like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. Honestly. Probably not going to come when it's convenient for you. I would, I would hope that I would, I would hope, I would hope they do a little bit of, of both, but, but it's a real challenge that the Denver won't have that a lot of the states and cities with the Michelin guide will not have. Um, is that that those shoulder seasons, um, lack of staff, and again, like I think we talked about at the very beginning, the Michelin inspector will sit down and expect the same experience, the same meal, the same service, no matter what's going on in the kitchen. And they will probably understand, given that they are probably hospitality professionals, but they also probably don't care. You know, they're going to have their criteria, um, so it's, a, it's an extra challenge, I think, that you have in, in these kinds of towns that perhaps restaurants in cities don't. Well, I, I think um, the way that we approach, approach that is we don't want to know who they are when they're in, and we just have to make sure that we're focused every day, doing our line checks, making sure the team's ready for service, and we're putting up, we're doing tastings with the staff constantly so that they, they can describe dishes and just do what we do every day. There's that line in the movie, Burnt, when he just says, let's do, do what we do. Yeah. That's, that's all we can do. And I think it goes into the concept that I constantly try to tell my team, like, 
we might have reservations that say they're VIP, but every guest is treated the same no matter who they are walking in the door. They're going to get the same top-notch service, the same food, that the best food that we can put out. Um, just because there's three extra letters to their name doesn't mean anything should be different. So. True enough. Got to own our mistakes. If something's not right, it comes yeah. back. We, we take it back out to the guest, make sure that, that they know that we, they're heard. And even, even if they send a steak back that we think is cooked perfectly, it's not cooked perfectly for them. So we, we adjust it and we send it out. Well, I suppose on that note, I wanted to ask, and this is a question that we've asked other people too, about um, the guests, but also, um, you know, sometimes you'll get reviews whether it's on TripAdvisor or something. And, you know, there are, there are unreasonable people out there. There are people who have legitimate complaints, but there are people who are just very unhappy individuals. They don't dine in restaurants, though, do they? Well, you know, <laughs> but, but I, guess the, um, I guess the question is, you know, do you read reviews? Do yes. You, and and how, do you, how do you feel when you read something that is not only kind of mean-spirited, perhaps, but is you know that it's not really true? You know that that person was having a bad day and they took it out on you. How does it make you feel? I take that as a chance to push myself harder. And if they think that there's something wrong, maybe there is. So go and sit in our guest's position, enjoy a meal, see it from their perspective and try to see what they're seeing. Because when we do it every day, it's very easy to overlook something that you're doing consistently even though you do it on a daily basis i mean do, but does it hurt your feelings sometimes knowing that the effort that you've put in um and it's i think it's okay to have your feelings it, it hurts, sometimes yeah. but it hurts yeah. it hurts to because you know your, your team is is d doing the best job that they can but we also have to be sensible about it it's you know it's it's a review it's it's the guest opinion you're not ever going to be able to please a hundred percent of the population. Yeah. So yeah. if you can get ninety nine point nine percent of them, That's you're doing enough. something okay. So you can both confirm that you have never thrown anything across a kitchen, or anything. You've never lost your temper. I've never. Th I've thrown things across the <laughs> kitchen, but not because of a review. <laughs> it's a long time ago, though. Yeah. I think the further I go in my career, I continue to gain more patience. I know my first chef he used to call me Chucky because my temper would. You know, I wouldn't be able to hold my tongue like I can these days. Um, <laughs> but I think that's also what grows you as a chef is it's going to happen, whatever it may be, and you'll find a solution at the end of the day. So, so we're, as we're wrapping up here, just a quick question. It's a stressful job, is it not? Can't, I mean, it can be. I would say it is a stressful job, yeah, but... So how do you how do you how do you wind down from that? Like as you as you finish your day, whether it's been a good day in the kitchen or a bad day in the kitchen, both of them can be a good day can be stressful as well, just a stress on your body and a bad day can be stressful for different reasons. So how do you how do you wind down your day? How do you let go of those things as you walk out of the kitchen? What does that routine look like for you? I'm always thankful that I'm able to live in a beautiful place. You know, if things get stressful during the day, I walk out on the patio, I stare at the mountains for a couple minutes, come back inside, and at the end of the day, tomorrow's a new day. So whatever happened today, it's in the past. You can't fix it. you got to move on. Just continue forth. 
do you have any type of like like routine though? Do you get like you, there was fly fishing mentioned? There was just, yeah, my days off, but really when I get off work, it's go home, put in my orders if I need to, watch a little bit of TV, go to bed. <laughs> not a not a very large glass of wine or. No. I'm kind of non typical in that way. I'm not a big drinker. So chefs, I think that's kind of working its way out of the industry. You know, it's obviously going to be there, but I don't think it, every chef is. I think to be successful, <laughs> you need to be, you need to be focusing on your game. You can't come in hungover. You can't come in high. It's, I've definitely never operated that way. For me, I like to, when I leave, if there's something I need to reconnect with the next day, I make notes. Like I've have thousands of notes and I always tell my team, it's better out than in. If there's something that's gone wrong, let's talk about it. How can we be better? It's all about communication. Especially if I leave if I leave unhappy about something, about the way something's gone or the way uh, somebody has interacted. It's not necessarily with me, but with each other. It's about getting them together the next day and talking about it so it doesn't happen again. But it is stressful. But like Mackenzie said, there's walking, there's... I like to get home and either do a walk before I come to work with the dogs or after work. That really helps me. Yeah, I do sit out on the patio every morning before I come in, just take an extra 20, 30 minutes and think about <laughs> everything except work. And then when it's time to work, it's time to work. All right. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I think yeah. It's, yeah, it's been great. Thank you very much for spending this time with us. Thank you very much. what September, September 12th brings. Let's see. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll check in with you after September 12th. Maybe the, the evening of September 12th. We'll see when they announce, uh, announce everything. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's done now. You know, everything's decided. It won't change anything that we do tomorrow, the next day or the next day, or even the 14th or the 15th. We'll still do exactly what we're doing. Bring the same focus and passion and drive and energy it would be nice though wouldn't it it'd be nice it's just recognition right from your peers i guess it's nice to get patted on the back i like it's nice i like it <laughs> are you begging for them to pat you on the back <laughs> no right now? i'm, begging, a I'm begging for a pat on the back from you i've been waiting wow, all day well, thank your... you for the great interview that was fantastic <laughs> you just made his day <laughs> But he no. didn't need that. I'm no, hear, no, I don't. I'm going to hear that. that all the way home now. Yeah, as he's driving me home. All right, we can. Yeah. I think we can wrap it up. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you.